0: Hi, everybody, who's hopefully joining us online earlier in the day than usual for our weekly podcast, New Ideal Podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. We are coming to you for the very first time in the history of the podcast, uh, live on location. All of our speakers are here with us uh, on a stage in Austin, Texas, at the Objectivist Conference, uh, which is also the first time we've had that in two years. We're very happy to be here. Uh, We have started a tradition of doing... Uh, monthly, roughly, monthly Q&A episodes where we just solicit questions from our audience on philosophy, on objectivism, on the application of objectivism to the world. We're going to continue that tradition here today, Uh, but this time we have with us a live audience who's going to be asking questions as well. We're still going to be looking at the questions that come in from online, trying to alternate between the two of them. So if you're watching on uh, Zoom on uh, super te- on YouTube on YouTube and on Facebook. We'll be monitoring those venues for questions. We like the super chat donations. If you want to ask on YouTube, um, but I think we shouldn't waste any more time. Uh, well, I'll just uh, introduce my colleagues as well. Uh, I'm Ben Bear, fellow and instructor at uh, Ayn Rand Institute. I also have with me uh, Mike Maza, uh, junior fellow at ARI, Aaron Smith, uh, fellow at ARI, and Ankar Gatte senior fellow at ARI. So uh, if you have questions that you'd like to ask, you can already in the audience, you can start to make your way up to the microphone. Um, one thing you can do here is ask questions on a- any of the morning session talks that we've given in the morning uh, over the past week. Um, but doesn't have to be restricted to that. It could be a question on any topic in philosophy that, that, uh, that, uh, Meets your fancy, uh, and we'll do our best to see if we can come up with an answer to it, or any other topic that's come up over the course um, of OCON. There's certainly been a lot that we've been discussing at this conference. So, who would like to who'd like to get started? And that includes people who are online. We're monitoring your questions online. Yes. Yeah. Um, so.
1: There's a potential tension between Rand's claim that she needed the Industrial Revolution to arrive at her philosophy, depending on how seriously you take that, with the idea that philosophy is supposed to be sort of accessible to all men at all times without specialized study. Do you guys think if one of you were sent back, could you have like taught Aristotle Rand's ethics and could he have understood it without needing the concrete evidence that, that we have today?
0: <laughs> I don't know about Aristotle. But I don't think I could have taught him much, but it's—I'm not convinced that there's the tension that you mentioned. It's—it's it's true that, uh, that in the objectivist oral tradition, uh, it's uh, Ayn Rand has uh, uh, is supposed to have said that she couldn't have arrived at her philosophy right. without knowing about the industrial revolution. But I don't think that her view was that—that. That, uh, she needed to be a specialist historian uh, to know about the relevant sure. facts of the, of the Industrial Revolution, or that she needed to be an engineer who studied the way that the, the, the industries developed, right. or an economist. She needed to know about the historical fact, which is a historical fact that's available to anyone once right. it happened. That's, that's, what I, and oh, okay. yeah. that's what I took her to mean. But I, others may have more to say.
2: I'll just say this, that you could push that argument, why go back to ancient Greece? Why don't you go back to the cave and say, couldn't the caveman have discovered everything about philosophy? Not
1: discovered, but learned. I think maybe those might be different as well.
2: So what, I mean, how do you learn it prior to discovering? It? No,
1: I'm saying if somebody else discovered it and then pointed to the caveman, the evidence in his context, so.
2: But what would the evidence be? So it's right. true for certain of the fundamentals of philosophy that are available yeah. to anyone, uh, particularly the metaphysics. It's available to anyone at first awareness. It takes a lot to conceptualize it, but to conceptualize it requires that language has been developed, that you're already right. towards civilization. <laughs> sure. But when you get to moral and political philosophy, there's a lot that's required for the advance of civilization mm-hmm. before you can start conceptualizing it and fully figuring out. And the issue of productivity is not an obvious issue, right. particularly the issue that reason is your means of survival And from the simplest things of building huts and so on to what science enables you to do in the world, the values it enables you to achieve, that's, it's a massive integration to get to reason as man's means of survival. And you need some of the evidence for that. And you just wouldn't have it in earlier states of civilization. And if you take political philosophy, you need a lot of development of the issue of government of thinking of government from a moral perspective to get to, again, the principle of individual rights is a massive integration of the way that man lives, the kind of government he needs, looking at where he's prospered and has not prospered in various types of government to figure out, okay, this is the the means of subordinating society to moral law. That's a massive induction, and you can't do it prior to having the evidence, and the evidence isn't available to the caveman.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, I was saying that this, this is kind of like a game of telephone. I never heard her say anything about this topic, but when it was originally stated by Dr. Peacock, it was that she told him she couldn't have understood capitalism. And it's more like what Ankar was just saying. And then it became she couldn't have understood her ethics as, as other people were being. And today it's she couldn't have formed her whole philosophy, which uh, I just want to register. She never said that, I'm quite sure. That, that is a welcome tradition, uh, correction to the, the game of telephone. Thank you, Harry. I'm told we have an online question.
3: Why do you or she use the term incoherent and not the term false? Any special reason for that?
2: Yes. So the once you get to the conceptual level of knowledge, once you get to reasoning, the presupposition for every claim that you make that you're saying is true is that you've chosen the process of engaging in reasoning, of being objective. I've surveyed the evidence. I've looked at it, I've logically processed it, and I've chosen to do all of this. And if you make the wrong choices, you are led into error. So it's a presupposition of every claim to conceptual knowledge that you have the power to choose and to direct and orient your mind towards reality instead of away from reality or indulging in your emotions and so on. And so every claim requires that. So the determinist who says, I know, that you don't have choice, is negating the very presupposition of his claim to knowledge, and that is more than false. It's incoherent position.
0: Okay, next up at the mic, please.
4: Uh, So building on that topic, I had a question regarding free will and causality, which came up in both the causality talk and the stoicism talk. Um, So I'm a physicist, and generally, you know, we use equations that have a certain input of information, you can predict the evolution of a system subject to some constraints. And so I, you know, there was classes I took while at school, you know, where there's actually philosophy of physics, um, trying to understand and reconcile what quantum mechanics means. And there's ways that you can effectively take, like, the principle of least action and convert take quantum mechanics and derive the classical limit from it. So my question is, you know, this immediately once motivates me to try to prove that free will exists from the bo- bottom up from physics. And sometimes I think, well, is that just trying to answer a philosophical question with a scientific uh, method for, or vice versa? Is it an inappropriate question to ask or try to do? Um, or is it legitimate?
5: Well, you can't. Hello. Is there a laugh track? (laughs) Okay, Kiss the mic, as they say. Um, Well, just uh, for the reasons that Ankar mentioned, uh, you can't prove free will, because it's a presupposition of proof. So you'd be assuming free will uh, in the act of proving it. So it would be uh, circular in that regard. Right. Well,
6: it sounds like what you want to do is give a theory of a physical basis for free will, which I, I don't think we're in a position to even know what something like that would look like, but um, that's not a
4: proof of it.
7: Sure.
6: Right? So yeah. giving a theory of something is not the same as a proof. So I, I agree with Aaron. Be cautious about thinking of it as a proof.
4: Okay. So maybe not using proof for it. Sure.
6: What
5: you need sure. is to conceptualize it and integrate the phenomenon of choice with other things that happen in nature. So when you think of. Like when you're trying to understand the causal relationships between other things in nature, whether it's planets or billiard balls or whatever, uh, you want to be able to integrate your understanding. Uh, and it might, it might come there are different forms of causality. Uh, different entities have different capabilities. Um, uh, in, 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 the, in the evidence for evidence, I don't think uh, is a One becomes aware of one's capacity to choose alternatives uh, introspectively. So that's where the data is, but okay. the conceptualization of it is very tricky, and that's why one of the reasons why it's been a problem throughout history
6: right yeah, I, I don't think you're ever going to have a scientific theory of free will if you're just looking at the physics I mean right you right. have right. to include the introspective data that's the primary data source
4: for right okay. for, for the yeah
0: time. I add one thing though which is that I mean there's a long history ever since the beginning of the 20th century of philosophers trying to do something with quantum mechanics right. to try to make sense of free will uh, it usually doesn't end up working because all that the physicists who think there's anything significant about quantum mechanics will say is that it shows there's a kind of a-causal randomness. And free will is not a-causal. It's a form of causation that's particular to human agency. However, um, it is, I think, useful uh, rhetorically to point out that the fact that quantum phenomena are not well understood, or at least that they're not easy to understand using the kind of classical mechanics perspective, you know, that we inherit from Newton, is a good reminder that one shouldn't approach the question of uh, of free will with a kind of preconceived prejudice about what what the only kind of causality is, right? Uh, and that the universe isn't just a bunch of billiard balls. If whatever it is, it's 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 more complicated than that, sure. and. Uh, so it's a useful reminder for kind of breaking free from kind
6: of picture thinking about causation. Okay. Just to add quickly, it, I mean, there's a lot of uh, determinists who point to physics as the, you know, uh, f- the physical world is deterministic. How can free will fit into a determin- right. If they're serious about looking at the, the actual physics, there's no... It, it's, it's not... Um, I don't think it's a known fact that all of reality is fully deterministic, and you know, all the way up and down, I, it might be. Sure. Um, and the, if they're just looking at the latest theories, it's not true that physics is deterministic. Right. Okay. And if it's if there's deterministic causation and non-deterministic causation in the physics, why can't there be other, you know, some other form we just don't know about? So there's a little bit of phoniness to the. Appeal to physics as the basis for determinism, selectively choosing right. what physics they want to look at and take seriously.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's great. And you know, I stopped at quantum mechanics because anything that really comes beyond that, it's hard to prove that it exists because there's no observables like string theory, as an example. Um, but for quantum mechanics, you can observe weirdness that doesn't seem to make sense. But in the sense, like at least my interpretation of it, is that it is probabilistically deterministic in the sense of the physical word of determinism, but it's not that it's, we're we're careful to use random versus chaos um, as well, because it conveys informational differences. Thanks, I think we have another online question.
3: Yes, the question is, how should we respond to the concept of greed that is often used in attacking selfishness and objectivism? Is greed a legitimate concept at all? Should it be explicitly dismissed in the process of rational defense of selfishness, or just ignored?
5: Uh, the way I think about greed uh, is, it's a it's a package used as a package deal, often because uh, that's how I think about it. Because what it, what does it usually mean? It means not just a desire for things goods money usually money uh, but not always but an inordinate desire too much uh where it's and i don't think i don't think too too much desire for money too much desire for material goods too much desire for sex too much desire for any kind of material value is a problem um, one can pursue these kinds of values irrationally they can take over um they can they can become such a central focus that other aspects, other spiritual aspects, other important aspects of life become, uh, just fall out of the picture, and then you don't have that aspect, and you can live a, what I would think is kind of a spiritually impoverished life. So there is a, there can be a problem with the way in which one, people pursue that, but the way in which it's used is if somebody's greedy, um, it's often used to sort of smear them, to say that it's the pursuit of profit, uh, and so on. And used in that way, I don't think it's legitimate. Similarly, like, The selfishness. There are people who think of their own interests as well. Other people are obstacles. Um, I just have to climb over them to get what I want. I mean, there are people like that. So there are some people who fit that notion. It's just the same with selfishness. It's the packaging of the pursuit of selfish interest with evil. Um, I think so. I think not every term. Something is not a package deal. uh, Something can be used as a package deal, and it can be used in a way that's, I think, more
2: legitimate, but I think you'd want to say that. So in Atlas Shrugged, one of the titles of the chapter is the Utopia of Greed. And if you look at it in that context, it's what Aaron was saying. It's the greed designates an ambition and a striving for, that. and I put in the widest context, that values in life you can keep achieving, and you can keep achieving more values and more life, if you put it more economically, that you can keep achieving more profit. And the, the smear is that when they put, oh, but don't do it too much. By what standard do you say that it is too much? And the standard really is you shouldn't be pursuing life. You shouldn't be pursuing values. You shouldn't be pursuing profit. Um, and if we're going to allow you to do it, we're not going to allow you to do it too much. So it, it is. I wouldn't go to, to war on the term greed in the way that selfishness I would, because it's designating a whole orientation. But the, it is a legitimate concept. And it, you can use it, as Ayn Rand uses it, and I think it's right to use it like that, as it's designating something good, that you should have that kind of ambition and passion for life and for values. And it, the smear is an attack on that. OK, hey, we can go back to the floor. What is the difference between uh, John Galt and Hugh Axton epi- epistemologically? In other words, like, what made uh, Galt uh, able to make the leap to start a strike, whereas Hugh Axton was content to just teach his students year after year and perhaps grumble about the state of the world around him?
6: <laughs> Galt's a genius. is one of, of greater scale than Axton. That's an obvious.
0: It's also a relevant difference, probably. And I don't know if there is a full answer to this question. I mean, this is speculation kind of on a fan fiction level, even, <laughs> uh, because I, unless she wrote it down somewhere what the difference was that made it to them, there's no fact of the matter to use to answer it. But if, if you had to speculate, uh, I'd add that it, he's not, I mean, Gault is not just a professor. He's is an inventor, and he's working uh, for a company that, has, that he's you know poured his life into to invent this motor and they've, they've, uh, they've voted to collectivize uh, the, the whole company, and, and he perceives that as a tremendous injustice. Uh, presumably that, that didn't happen to Axton, so that's a major, a major difference. Um, uh, I don't think you can reduce it just to that difference. It's a choice that Walt makes. I don't think you can... Uh, you know, per, you know, related to the previous question, it's a free will choice that he makes, and so that, the reason he chooses it is because he chooses it, but I don't know if there's more to
2: add. I'm not sure what the question is. So is, is it, why is Galt able to do it and Axton isn't, or what does Galt do that Axton does not do? What does he know and what does he discover that Axton does not discover? Well, yeah, I was just wondering uh, why, uh, why uh, Galt was able to do it. Uh, what, what enabled him to make the leap to um, discover, yeah, uh, to act, discover and act against, uh, what he considered to be wrong with the world? Well, I don't know if it's a leap, but it's, so yeah, I think the answer to that is he's a genius. Um, But what does he discover? The central issue is the sanction of the victim. And then what he, and then it's a whole formulation around that of what the morality of life really looks like, what it requires of a person, the kind of consistency and rationality, and what the morality of death looks like, and what it means in practice. And the way in which what the whole perspective is, it's a, an attempt to get away with living. And for that to work, you have to siphon the, the people who are on the side of life to support the people who are on the side of death, who don't want to bother with the actions required to live, but somehow want to stay in existence. And that's what he figures out. And in the, in the factory, when he says no to this, it is he's seen the mechanism and fully seen the mechanism by which this works and the way to stop it. And that, Axton hasn't discovered, even if he has elements of, he's on a side of pro-life and understands what's wrong in evil philosophies to some extent. But Galt gets an integration of that whole, and the interplay between that, that just Axton doesn't have, I think.
0: It strikes me that this relates to the first question that came up about Ayn Rand and Aristotle, because I think what we're led to believe about Axton is that he's some kind of uh, an Aristotelian philosopher. He's, he's not an objectivist, if that makes any sense in the context. Of I mean, he, 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 it's Galt who has formulated and discovered uh, this view of ethics, the morality of life. And so the question of what does Galt get that Axton didn't is basically the same as what did Ayn Rand discover that Aristotle didn't? Uh, and, and again, it's relevant that Galt is working in the factory. Ayn Rand's working after the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we have another online question before we go to the mic.
3: Yes, this is a super chat question from YouTube, so thank you for the donation. And the question is, on the subject of proof, has there been any progress since Dr. Picoff on the subject of philosophical induction?
6: I don't know. Well, Harry has some interesting new things to say in his book. (laughs) (laughs) Harry, do you want to come back up to the mic?
0: He says he doesn't want to come to Mike, okay. I don't, I don't know of any myself. It's certainly a subject that's of continuing interest to many uh, people who work in the area of epistemology uh, and philosophy of science. Mike does some of that work. He did dissertation on causality, which is certainly a important, crucial topic Relevant to, to, to induction. Greg Salmieri has, I think, done a lot of thinking on induction. You can see some of that reflected in the companion to Ayn Rand in some of the ARSPS volumes. But other than that, nothing no major developments that I know of. And we have another, no, we just did the online question, so we're at the mic. Uh,
2: Yes, Uh, I'm curious if any of the panelists have anything to say about uh, the recently proposed first level definition of selfishness, where selfishness merely means that the self is the intended beneficiary, or the intended beneficiary, as opposed to the objectivist definition of selfishness. And if I can focus my question, is there anything achieved by this first level definition, uh, or does it only create confusion?
0: The first level definition is of what?
2: So it, it's something like that selfishness just means that the intended beneficiary is the self, as opposed to that you know, with the full context of what is required to live. This is what selfish is.
0: Is this related to the discussion that was on the panel? Yeah, uh, this is a
2: this is a controversy between Harry Binswanger and Peter Schwartz. But I just want to know if the panelists have anything to say. <laughs> so about I
0: don't this. myself think that the issue is whether it's intended versus uh, actual outcome, I, because I think you know you, you look at someone like uh, Dagny in in Atlas, and she's certainly intending to achieve her self-interest all through the beginning of the novel, but she's failing miserably, and I'm not going to, but I think she's still selfish. Uh, so I, I don't think that's the issue. It's what is she intending to do, and by what means is she doing it, that's, that's really crucial. And so one of the questions that came up in the debate yesterday uh, was about about intention and, and about whether someone's concerned with their self-interest. And I think that I, I tend to side more with Harry on this one because uh, I think that the the Bernie Madoff type who looks like he's concerned with his self-interest but mistaken about what it uh, it constitutes, I don't think he's really concerned if you take the word concerned seriously. Um, he's. And precisely because, I mean, the way that the alternative view is being presented was he's concerned with his self-interest, but he's evading. I think that if you're evading, you're not concerned with yourself in any relevant sense if what yourself is is your rational mind. And I think evasion is, a, is an immediate undercutting of a genuine concern with your interests and your life. That's my take. I don't know what others think on this. subject.
2: I didn't hear the debate. I had to step out. Um, you have to think in what sphere you're, what are you conceptualizing? So you have to also think what the contrast to selfish is. And the more you think of it, the contrast is, it's altruism or something like that, then you're you're conceptualizing people who have some self-conscious conception of this is the end that I'm pursuing. And from that perspective, I don't think you can classify everybody as selfish, Altruistic. There's people who don't have that kind of conception over their life, and the Bernie Madoff would be this kind of example. It's not that he has a conception that, OK, my end is my self-interest, and now what I'm doing is taking actions to achieve that. Um, so the, I do not think of selfish versus altruistic as exhaustive classification of people, or if you put some other, if, if you take altruistic as, as, as focused on other people, and then you could put a religious person. To, but those are people who have some conception of an end that they're pursuing. And then it's the question of the means to it. Um, you can use selfish in a, and I, I think when you look sort of at, in, in the usage of it, in a way different than that. But it's whenever you're thinking about these kinds of terms, you have to think in distinction to what? What is it being contrasted with? And when we're in a more moral context, you're contrasting it with different conceptions of an end, and it doesn't have to be a fully philosophical uh, analysis of what that end in, end is, but it has to have be some conceptualization of it as an end that is worthy of pursuit.
0: Kiss the mic. Kiss the mic. Kiss the, the mic. mic. <laughs> okay, we have another online
4: question.
3: Yes, the questioner asks. Is it right to conclude that action should not be characterized as selfish if one uses illegal or immoral methods to achieve them? Well,
0: There's a big difference between illegal and immoral methods uh, because uh, back to my earlier example from Atlas there's all kinds of uh, heroic characters in that story who are definitely doing illegal things who are still being moral and and selfish at the same time. Reardon who's uh, uh, you know, conspiring with Daniger to get coal uh, for his, to to make steel. Uh, many other examples of the same thing. Now, immoral is a different question. If it's really immoral, then uh, if if the standard of morality, at least according to objectivism, is man's life is a rational being, that's also the standard of one's self-interest. And I think, for reasons we were just discussing, uh, you can't you can't fully intend a, a proper selfish end if you don't have some. Uh, conception of uh, uh, moral, uh, rational moral standards.
5: And I'll, and I'll add just one thing, is that you can't, you can't build in an objectivist moral theory into your definition of selfishness such that an action, if, if I have a conception of the end, of what I want to pursue, and I conceive this is of my self-interest and I'm out to pursue it, and then you're saying, yeah, but you're using it illegal or immoral by what standard means, um, it's then it's, oh, it can't, it can't be called selfish if it doesn't meet my the standards of my moral theory, then it's, it's, it's not a general definition anymore, I think.
2: I wasn't sure what the question means. So if the question is, from the perspective of objectivism, can you pursue selfishness uh, in the absence of morality or in contradiction to the principles of morality? Objectivism definitely says, no, you cannot. The whole morality is formulated to help you conceptualize what is in your self-interest and what the means to it are. And it stresses that the means have to be principled means. And what morality is developing is the principles by which you pursue your self-interest. So from that perspective, the answer is for sure no. But if you're putting it if immoral, so what Ben said about illegal, if you have... Um, laws that should not be on the books, and you take action that is from the perspective of a mixed economy or from a totalitarian government, it's illegal. It doesn't mean it's not in your self-interest. It often is in your self-interest to shirk the law. And the same is true of morality. If you have a conventional view of morality, its principles are, in fact, um, in contradiction to many of the requirements of human life. And there... And Reardon is an example again, just as he faces laws that he has to violate in order to continue to be productive. He faces a deep conflict between conventional altruistic moral principles, or principles in quotation marks, and his thinking about his own self-interest. And he experiences a real tension between those. That tension is real. And he's right to think that it, to pursue my self-interest requires violating, but what it really requires is discarding these moral principles that are standing in the way of his values and his life.
0: And for more on that, see my talk on pride from earlier this week. Uh, let's
5: go to the floor. Thanks. Um, Aaron, I have a question for you about your talk yesterday from Stoicism. So as I was listening to you describe how Stoics go about you know, figuring out what's external to themselves and then trying to figure out their virtue, um, One of the things I noticed uh, that stood out to me was that there wasn't any mention of how they go about validating. There wasn't any reference to reality at all about how they would validate whether or not they were being virtuous. I was just wondering if that was something that you just didn't have a chance to talk about, or if that was something that they were explicitly not uh, making any reference to. So is the question, how do they validate their virtues? Like, why pursue virtue? Right. I think the validation for the Stoics for their particular virtues is incomplete but they have a starting point which is that um, their view is that nature has made living organisms such that they're naturally oriented toward their self-preservation and you, you can see this in the animal world, they try to move away from things that hurt them and they you know, move toward things that uh, benefit them. Uh, The mother takes care of the child. You can see this in the animal world. And there's there's a certain sort of um, way in which you've appropriated your body. This is myself. This is, uh, uh, and there's a self-preservation and also um, an orientation toward close kin. Um, There's a care involved. And so what they took that to mean, I think in part, is that um, if we're going to live in accordance with nature, uh, both our own human nature and the nature of the world around us, um, we need to use our reason to figure out what is in fact appropriate in our lives, what is appropriate for us to do if we're going to live in accordance with our nature and not contrary to it, and if we're going to live in accordance with the nature around us, uh, the nature of the world around us, rather than in contradiction to it. Um, you have to formulate some sort of principle for that. And so, uh, in essence, what they think their virtues boil down to is rationality. Um, they see them as aspects of rationality. So if they look at um, things like prudence, or maybe you call it a practical wisdom or something, it's the application of reason to what, what is in one's interests um, on the whole, and then they look at justice, and, well, that's an aspect of, of that. It's This is what looks like in, in relation to people. Um, this is what it looks like in relationship to, like, moderation is another virtue. This is what it looks like, what rationality looks like when it comes to things like food and drink and pleasures and things. Um, what I think is missing to that is they, ne- they never placed uh, life as the standard by which they're going to figure out why these virtues, why these developments of rationality, why does that matter? And it's appropriate to our nature. It's very teleological. And so what their view was, we have to fulfill our nature. But that's mainly not so that we can live and succeed. And but it's more that because this is what's appropriate. This is how nature has set things up. And we have to live up to that. And that is part of our Tartelos, our, our goal. Um, and so it's, it's, it's turned inward in a very teleological way rather than turned outward for life, success, value pursuit, and so on. Cool. Uh, but it is interesting the yeah. way they formulate these.
0: But then the other thing that's really missing is choice, right? And that's not a surprise given that they're determinists. It's yeah. important for objectivism's take on morality that it's, uh, the, the foundations of it are facts about human life and free will because life has to be chosen, and values have to be chosen, and uh, when you don't think anything's chosen, it's no surprise that you come out uh, with a a duty-oriented ethics, which is exactly what the Stoics have. Thank you. We have another online
3: question. Yes, the questioner asks, in the jump from requirements of survival to living a life proper to man, what principles should guide whether a particular value is consistent with a life proper to man and how should this be validated
0: well, that's a big that's a big question and the i would I would start by disputing somewhat the way the question's even formulated at the beginning because it suggests there's a dichotomy between mere survival and life proper to man now this is whether there's that dichotomy is something that uh, objectivists and fans of Ayn Rand have debated about uh, for decades now, uh, I'm pretty firmly on the side uh, of the position that, there, that it is a dichotomy and that there's no real difference. That if you're surviving, you're surviving as a kind of being with a certain kind of identity and there's no, there's no such thing as mere life to a human that isn't life proper to man. Uh, it's not really life. Life is always for every organism a particular kind of activity. Uh, and for human beings, that includes not just, as, as Harry always emphasizes, cellular metabolism, but uh, the, the, the full life of our body and of our mind and of our, and of our rational mind. And that is not our mind is not simply a means to the end of uh, ourselves. It is a, it's a constituent. That the rational activity is a constituent of human life. And how do you validate that? Well, uh, the whole objectivist ethics has uh, a lot to say about it. All of the virtues. Uh, are uh, particular exercises of rationality uh, with regard to important crucial aspects of the relationship between existence and consciousness. And the validation is uh, based on observing these facts about human consciousness and all the things that it needs in order to live. Um, and that's, that's the part that's, a, big, that's a, a long answer to a big question. But I refer you to OPAR, um, chapter eight, which has a lot to say about what those facts are.
6: Just another uh, recommendation if you get yourself a copy of the Companion to Ayn Rand, I believe it's chapter four by Alan Goddelf, The Morality of Life, where he deals directly with some of those questions, including some of the criticisms of objectivism that are along those lines. So that's worth looking at, too. And read the footnotes, too. Yes, they, always read the footnotes. They're that's really the good, good
8: stuff. On
6: yeah. I
8: think the floor mic is next. Nice. Yeah. Hi, uh, thanks for, uh, for this uh, talk. Um, hopefully i formulated this well uh this question kind of came to me during uh, mike's talk on causality um uh, the i'll start with the question essentially what i'm wondering is how do you validate the idea of an entity and I guess, or sorry, of entity and how is uh, and how is identity axiomatic? So my question comes from the thought process of, you know, if if everything is matter or everything comes down to atoms or, or comes down to energy or puffs of meta energy, and that's all traceable back to the Big Bang, and it's all the same stuff. You know, how do we make distinctions of, of different kinds of things or say that one thing has one nature, one thing has another nature, um, when uh, when it's all the same? Thing. That, if that makes sense
6: well if I understand what you're a- sorry kiss the mic
8: okay <laughs> if
6: I if I understand what you're asking um, so I think the basis of the concept entity is not does not refer to puffs of meta energy or anything it's a, it's a kind of conceptualization of one aspect of the world as present to us in perception so its domain is conceptualizing the data given to us in perception. I don't think there's any um, necessity that everything we find that exists is going to be an entity. So if we find on some micro level that there's not really uh, a firm entity, uh, non-entity distinction, that that's not a problem. That that concept is validated by and for the content of perception is my understanding. Now,
8: you asked about. Um, what was the other? Uh, well, I guess how how identity is then axiomatic by, you know, in that context.
6: Well, it's axiomatic because it's the, the all of the um, information you need to get to that concept is contained in perception and in any other act of cognition. Mm-hmm. So it, that's kind of, um,
5: yeah. Yeah. And, so, and, yeah. Yeah, do you want to add anything? Uh, the identities, uh, identity is um, perceptually available. So it's not something, I mean, what you, one can conceptualize it, but it's, there's nothing more to that. I, I think that if the question is, there are different levels of description. So if you're talking about entities, you uh, like hierarchically, you begin at the perceptual level and you have a world of entities, of things separated in space and distinct and so on. Um, it's not that what if what we discover is that you know, it, everything's all made of the same microparticles or whatever it is, that you know what, there actually are no entities. No, that's not the same thing. That's just like saying, well, from the perceptual level, there are entities, so there's just no such thing as these microparticles. It's all, they're all, there's no, those don't really exist, it's just really entities. Mm. You know, it's the, these are just different levels in which one can describe something, but I think when you're, uh, when you're conceptualizing, the first stage is definitely at the level of entities. Yeah. And you couldn't proceed beyond to discover things like particles and stuff if you weren't conceptualizing the yeah, other entities, and then let's learn more about their identities. Mm-hmm. And I think, did you ask about the proof of yeah. those?
8: Well, I guess the validation of entities yeah. as so, such. So it. how
6: do you validate the concept of entity? It's, well, what's an entity? Well, this chair, this cup, you're an entity, I'm an yeah. entity. Like, you just enumerate these things until you kind of get on to what's being pointed out to you. There's no there's no real steps to this. There's no inferential steps from, I don't know, some other concepts up to entities. It's, uh, yeah, and uh, sa- same with identity. What's the identity? Everything you just you, you start just you, you point. Yeah, you part start pointing and get <laughs> trying to get somebody to to you know get on to what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. It's, All right. Thank you. C- wait, can I say one? My guess uh, that part of the motivation of the question is something like this: that <clears throat> so puffs of meta energy is a term that Dr. Picoff puts in Opar that he says, Ayn Rand used to refer to the basic constituents, constituents, plural, of reality. And I took it your question was something like, if those basic constituents are all the same, how do we get all this difference? Um, the philosophy does not dictate to reality in that way. So you could have an argument like this, that it, if you get down to those protons and electrons, now leave aside the subatomical parts <laughs> There's only two things, so we can only get four different things from that. And so like that, you can't dictate to reality like that. So the fact is that what we know is there's a wide variety of entities that have identity, and as they said, that's self-evident. And what physics is going to discover about the basic constituents, has to be compatible with the fact that there's a, this world, and world of different entities with different identities. But you can't legislate that it, it, maybe it's going to be all one kind of thing, that in all kinds of different combinations and so on produces the vast variety of what we observe around us.
8: All right, thank you.
0: And I think we have a, another online question.
3: Yes, the questioner says, philosophy rests on a view of human nature, a view of psychology. Where is the dividing line between what aspects of psychology are included in the philosophy of, of objectivism? And more specifically, are any of such psycholo- psychological views of Ayn Rand essential to or part of the philosophy of objectivism, such as, for example, reviews views on the difference between masculinity or, and femininity and her view that one cannot honestly believe in communism?
0: Well, you can use it narrower and a broader definition of the concept of psychology. The broader definition is something like any study or concern with consciousness. The narrower definition would be the specialized scientific study of that empirically. And if you take the broader definition then certainly there are there, there's, there are psychological facts that make it into objectivism. In the, the axiom of consciousness is, is psychological in that sense, and certainly much of the objectivist epistemology uh, is concerned with psychoepistemology, and that's psychological. But that's, this goes back to our previous question about what, uh, what one needs to do. philosophy. Uh, philosophy is something that's in principle accessible to anyone without the need for specialized scientific knowledge, and there are facts about our consciousness that fall under that uh, domain, and if you want to call that psychological, fine. Uh, but specialized psychology is is not something that's uh, that's part of philosophy, and therefore not part of objectivism. And I think I think that does include uh, views uh, about sexual psychology, for instance, views about the essence of masculinity and femininity. Now, that doesn't mean that Ayn Rand's views on those subjects aren't uh, worthy of consideration aren't heavily influenced by and dependent upon her philosophical views uh, and her philosophical psychological views. So I don't think those are, you know, her views on that top, those topics are part of the philosophy per se. They're not the fundamental essentials uh, of the philosophy of objectivism. They're an application of objectivist philosophy to a specialized scientific question. Um, and you have to, th- you know, th- think, think of that when you're considering them. But, um, yeah, I don't think they're part of the philosophy per se.
5: Okay. But but on, but on those issues, um, to the, the extent to which they relate to values and choice, uh, they will, they will have, have bearing on philosophy, and philosophy will have a bearing on the issue. But it's not that philosophy settles by itself um, these kinds of questions, because you'd need to bring in other kind of research that's outside the field. Okay, to the floor.
7: Another question for Harry. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, Actually, Ankar, probably. Um, I believe when we send our military into a place, we should go for the unconditional defeat of the enemy. But um, like with the Afghan situation, is there any way we could have had a more um, face safe and exit from there without actually defeating the enemy?
0: I didn't hear quite... Uh the last part of your question, is if, there any way we could have had our, our a more face
7: saving um exit rather than the one we're dealing with. Uh, could we actually leave there without defeating the enemy, but still um not being a total loss,
5: no.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
5: I, I, I think not I mean This is not really my area, I have, I'm not the one who follows this as tightly as others. Um, But given the whole build-up and the whole history of us being in Afghanistan and the goals and uh, the activities and the sort of nation building going on, and uh, I don't see how you could have, there could be anything face-saving about leaving. Um, I think I agree with you in principle,
0: uh, insofar as, I mean, the Napoleonic wisdom of uh, don't get into into an impossible situation in the first place is relevant here. And given that we were trying to do something that was impossible and unjustified from the start, there was going to be some degree of, I mean, there was going to be huge loss because of that. And everybody was going to see it. That's what you mean by uh, not saving face. But even that said, like I now and here, you know, you venture into. Do I have? I'm not a. This is armchair uh, military speculation, and I'm I'm not an expert on military uh, affairs. But like, here's one thing that strikes me, and it seems so obvious that, like, if you're going to if you're going to retreat from a country. Uh, in, in such a humiliating way, you could at least destroy the military assets that you left behind so that they don't fall into the hands of the Taliban, including the helicopters and uh, the munitions and the airfields. My god.
5: <laughs> oh.
0: That stuff should have, should have been destroyed. Uh, it makes me very angry.
5: Uh, one other thing is that you, if, you, if you withdrew for more rational, self-interested reasons, you would state your reasons. We never should have been here. This was a self-sacrificial war. Um, We're going to take all our people, every one of them, home, and we'll destroy anyone who tries to stop us. And you know, but you'd state your reasons. We should not have been here. This was a self-sacrificial war. Uh, It was a losing. It was a. We should never have been here. And that I I think you could have left with some dignity.
7: Thank you
9: don't see any more online questions just yet, so we can go to the floor still. All right. Um, so Jordan Peterson has made studying the Bible stories something to take seriously again. And this has impacted my home such that my uh, intelligent teenager has read Thomas Aquinas and has found it convincing. Um, But there's an epistemological error at the root of what Jordan's doing, and he's trading on something that is making him successful. How, as a parent, do I interact with a young mind who is actually taking ideas and values seriously in the face of a phenomenon like Jordan Peterson?
5: Are you able to explain to your child what you think is wrong with the approach, rather than you know, being combative, this is all wrong, and this is crap, and here's Rattler or, <laughs> um, or Or can you actually say, um, no, this is interesting, but here's, here's some of the things I think that uh, are mistaken about it? And do you feel like, like I know what that is, and I could explain it, and then they just don't listen to you? or It's more like, how do I explain, how do I formulate that? Well, I
9: mean, we we have um, we've taken to actually having written debates because that's easier to be a little more level in our emotions, uh, where we'll go through the five proofs of God and we'll take it line by line. And, you know, I start realizing, like, I don't really know whether Aristotle's actuality and potentiality is even appropriate here. And how do I explain an invalid concept when I don't fully get how that works? I know I think um, in one of Leonard Peikoff's uh, talks he says well, one he never propagandized to to Kira, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to propagandize to my son, um, but. Uh... Anyway, so I'm, I'm looking for the philosophical experts to do this in a serious way that will, wherever we get to, that he will feel free that I am respecting his um, process of understanding the world.
0: So none of us here is a parent, so I don't know if we oh, have Oh, no. <laughs> expertise on, on that subject. But I'll say one thing about Jordan Peterson, because you were asking about what is it about what he's doing that is gaining such a following Including among many young people you 're right, uh, it's a, this is not just your son. Um, one thing that I think he's onto to, and he talks about it constantly is is the importance of stories mm-hmm. now he 's so onto to it that he thinks like his whole metaphysics is built out of and his epistemology is built out of stories, like we know the world through stories uh, and it's, it's it's kind of strange, but at the same time, I mean I think he 's latched on to one of the things that Ayn Rand latched onto in the Romantic Manifesto about uh, the way in which literature concretizes metaphysics and uh, is, enables the projection of moral ideals. And that, that's something that young people are looking for. And it's something that they've been starved of in their you know, day-to-day educational curriculum. And he's pointing them to places where they can find it. And all too often, he's pointing to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, Bible is the greatest story ever told, they say. So uh, it's it's a, like I don't think that you're going to change too many minds of young people by uh, pointing out the flaws in the Aquinas' arguments for God. If they're going to that, it's because they're they're already on the premise that there's something important that religion has to offer, and now they're just looking for the details to rationalize their, their perspective. Uh, what they think religion has to offer that's so important is a, is a perspective on the meaning of life and what's valuable in life, and if they're getting to that through the emphasis on stories, th- there I think the only uh, real alternative is, is, is other stories, and, mm-hmm. and you know, so Ayn Rand has fiction, and that's how young people get into her ideas in the first place, and it's not just some kind of emotionalistic uh, uh, reaction, it's, it's that the stories of... Her novels dramatize these important meaning of life, metaphysical uh, conflicts, and, and so and it's not just Rand. I mean, you can you can give your 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 children, Victor Hugo, and you can get and Dostoevsky, and, and uh, it's important to indicate. I mean, and, and Peterson loves Dostoevsky, and there's a lot of good stuff in there too. It's important to indicate to them. There's a whole range of different worldviews here that are portrayed by these stories, and not just Peterson.
9: Thank you. Anyone else?
0: We have uh, five minutes left, All right, and I think we have at least time for one more online question. I'm not yet sure if we'll have room for any uh, at the floor, but let's go with our online.
3: The question says that uh, this question relates to the idea that principles are absolute within a context. So is it correct to hold this as when principles are applied to different contexts? It is the principles' application that changes from context to context.
0: I think that's one right way to that's one way to put it. I don't think that's that's everything there is to it. Um, it's a little funny to talk about the principles being applied because it suggests that the principle is one thing over here, and then the context is something else over there. But all that a principle is is a knowledge of some kind of cause and effect relationship, and the, and the cause and effect relationships are in the world. Um, but what's true is that uh, causal relations, and maybe Mike can say more about this, are contextual in the sense that you can factorize them. You can have a, something that works uh, as a causal factor, but it can be interfered with by other causal factors. I mean, the, the example that came up sometime earlier in the... Uh, the conference was Ayn Rand's example about uh, gravity, the professor who says that gravity isn't absolute because airplanes can fly. Well, there, in that kind of example, you see the same thing at work. Gravity is still there. It's still a factor. It's still pulling down. It's just being counteracted by uh, an opposite factor, which is the force of lift. And so the force of gravity is still real, uh, and, and it's, it's absolutely real, is one way of putting it. It's still exerting a force, but it's being counteracted by other forces, and that's a fact of the context
6: of the causal relation. I I agree with that. I I don't know if I have anything else to add to what you said, other than, um, I mean, that's just a feature of all causal knowledge. You're trying to understand something to a certain uh, degree of precision, say. And if you start to need to understand it to a greater degree of precision, there'll be new information you need to take into account, new causal factors. The example I like to use is um, if you're trying to measure the motion of a, a uh the cue ball on a pool table rolling across the table under normal circumstances you just want to know how fast it's going. sorry you just want to know how fast it's going but uh, uh if you need to measure its speed to seven decimal places uh, maybe you need to know a little more than just its um, shape and direction and the forces involved on the ball you need to know uh, the frictional forces on the Uh, between the ball and the table. It's just the the greater detail you need, the more causal factors you have to add. But I don't don't know um, if that's really getting at what he's asking about.
2: Yeah, can I say something about, I would need to know more about the question and its motivation, but I suspect there's an equivocation on what context means. So uh, to say that principles are absolute within a context, Context there is a broad survey. The principles are reached inductively. So the context is the inductive information that you need to reach the principle. And there are then will be context, but again from a broad perspective, that it's not applicable to. Or yet you would have to think much more about what are the principles that govern here. So, And this is, it's often brought up when it's asked about objectivism, about moral principles or political principles the issue of property rights, or the issue of justice. And then it's those, those principles are formulated looking at um, human beings' interactions in civilization, in a society. And then people bring up, well, what about a desert island? Now that you're just taking it outside of the context in which the principle is induced, and which you're trying to formulate guidance to figure out what is the pro-life direction and what is the anti-life direction. But you can also use context in the situation. You need to know the details about it. And the application of a principle to a context doesn't, does not mean you're in some alien place, like you're on a desert island versus looking at civilization. It's rather, if you have the principle of justice, you need to know a lot about the context of the particular interactions you're looking at, if you're a judge, say, to figure out like, what is the just outcome here, what is the just verdict, and what is it? And there it is. You need to know the context, which means you need to know the specifics. And the principles, when you're applying them, you're usually applying them in the context in which they're formulated. But you need to know the specifics about the particular situations you're looking at to actually apply them and use them for guidance. And I suspect the question is equivocated; It's moving from one kind of view of context to another.
0: Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, no more time for questions. Sorry about the last few people who came up to the mic. Uh, we need to wrap up. One thing I want to do before we wrap up is to thank the uh, couple of people who donated uh, through Super Chat to get their questions to the top of the queue today. It's something you can always do. Thank you for your donations. Um, otherwise, I'd like to remind you of some things coming up. Uh, next week's episode of New, do- New Ideal is going to be a special episode. Uh, related to the upcoming 9 11 20 year anniversary, 20 years of ARI commentary on 9 11. Uh, next Wednesday, we're going to, it's going to be a flip show. We're going to show some of the highlights of ARI's 20 years of commentary uh, on uh, that horrific, uh, in, uh, uh, tragic event. And uh, that's in preparation for then a special New Ideal Live show we're going to be doing over the weekend on Saturday, September 11th. Uh, So please stay tuned for that. Uh, As usual, if you uh, like this episode of New Ideal, please be sure if you're watching on YouTube to uh, follow us. uh, Subscribe, hit the bell button if you want to get notifications. And if you're watching the recording of this, please consider liking it and and writing a comment that helps optimize the algorithm so that we can get more followers in the future. Uh, Likewise, if you're on Facebook, uh, like the episode, share it, comment on it. That also helps us with the algorithm. And as always, if uh, you have any questions about what came up in the episode today or uh, any other subjects in philosophy, you can consider sending us an email at newideal.inrand.org. We read all the email that comes in. We answer many of the emails. And we we sometimes do uh, episode topics that were suggested by people in our audience. So that's all we have for today. Thanks, everybody, in Austin. So great to do this live. And we are now going to another session of the conference. For those of you online, we will see you next week. Thank you.
5: You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn
0: Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.